Good morning, everybody. Let's um, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that once again you would speak powerfully to us through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that it would not just be a thing of our ears, but a thing of our hearts and our hands that we carry forward with us from this day on. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're carrying on our study of 2 Corinthians, but for some of you there will be a giant leap forward. Although two weeks ago we finished chapter 2, this week we will be studying chapter 4. And this is because I had a look at chapter 3, it looked a bit boring and I decided to leave it out completely. Well, of course not. This is because we've already done the whole of chapter 3 last year. I'm very sorry if you missed that, but perhaps I can console you by making this a short sermon. Anyway, we will be looking at verses 1 and 2 today in chapter 4, so please can you turn there now. Have you ever stopped to think about what kept Paul going? You know, he's walking for miles and miles, shipwrecks, stonings, constant assaults on his character. Surely a highly intelligent and well-educated man like that could easily find himself a comfortable position of power and privilege. And yet he does not. Instead, he goes and looks for more long walks, more stonings and more shipwrecks. Don't you think that's a bit peculiar? Granted, there was that motivation of that amazing encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. But even so, years and years of the hardest kind of life must have taken their toll, both physically and mentally. And so you might think that eventually he would have grabbed a case of beer from the market and gone off to sulk in the rock somewhere. I'm not doing this, Lord, anymore. Find somebody else. But that's not at all the attitude we see in this text. No, there is a power here that keeps Paul steady. If we study it, if we can find and understand it, maybe it will help us too in moments of difficulty. So let's read then. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now here's the thing. If I start my commentary today by just jumping straight here into verse 1 of chapter 4, I have a problem. And it's caused by us having skipped past chapter 3. Well, why is that? To answer it properly, I think it might be useful to give some background to the modern Bible system of identifying specific parts, what we know as chapter and verse. Since we are so very used to this system, it's easy to assume that a chapter is only assigned to a particular idea or a pericope, to use the technical term, and therefore it's a little thing that stands on its own, so we don't need to look at the connection to the verses around it. Also, since we believe the Bible was written by men under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we might also think that chapter and verse numbers that we see today are similarly inspired. None of these things is true. Chapter and verse is the work of humans alone over quite a considerable amount of time. As written, each book was an unbroken text from beginning to end, and obviously this would have made pointing to a special bit a trifle difficult. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? 
Would you just unroll that scroll a few more cubits, Moses? No, no, back a bit, a back, a bit further maybe. So it didn't take long for a human solution to emerge. The Jews have had a system for dividing the Torah up into smaller pieces for thousands of years. In Christian circles, there were a number of different attempts made over the centuries to subdivide the biblical books into smaller pieces so that we had a reference system for specific passages. The system of chapters used today is usually credited to a fellow named Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1200s. That was a long time ago. And their first use was in copies of the Latin Vulgate. A 14th century rabbi, Solomon ben Ishmael, seems to have adapted Langton's, Langton's chapter division for use in Hebrew Bibles, which complemented the existing verse divisions which had been done many years earlier. And as a final refinement, New Testament verse divisions seem to have been introduced in the 1550s. And there were different blokes quoted as being responsible for that, so I won't try to name them. So the way we see the Bible today, it didn't happen by overnight by any means, and moreover, the people who did it, well, they did it on their own initiative. They had no real heavenly authority to do so. And that means that we need to make some proper adjustments when we know that. Although our reference system is so very helpful, it can also cause a whole bunch of problems when we don't allow for this history. The first allowance is that chapters and verses are only meant to be helpful for reference and quotation. The truth is that the way the text is broken up is sometimes arbitrary, so that reading with a narrow focus will seriously mess with the meaning of the, of the passage. So the first thing that we need to do when we're interpreting the Bible is to ignore the modern chapter and verse divisions and look for the whole picture, or else we won't miss what the writer really meant to say. I'll give you an example, Colossians 2. So if we read chapter 21 by itself, sorry, we read verse 21 by itself, it says, don't handle, don't eat, don't touch. We look at that, the verse by itself, and it gives us the impression that scripture is encouraging some kind of physical self-denial. But the opposite is actually what's true. In context, Paul is actually teaching against this type of behavior. His argument goes like this. You have died with Christ and he has set you free from the evil powers of this world. So, why do you keep following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't eat, don't touch? And the next verse emphasizes that such restrictions are human ones. They aren't commandments from God. Such rules are mere human teaching about things that are gone as soon as we use them. Therefore, when we properly read this verse in context, we look at the whole thing, it says this, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the evil powers of the world. So, why do you keep following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't eat, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teaching about things that are gone as soon as we use them. The rules may seem wise because they require devotion, humility and bodily discipline, but they have no effect when it comes to conquering a person's evil thoughts and desires. You see the problem? How one verse on its own gives the completely the wrong impression of biblical teaching. And this is why it is so very important that we don't fall into the trap of breaking one verse out from the rest of them and allow others to do it from the pulpit sometimes. And sometimes it happens out in the world as well, you know. And in that case, it's helpful to note that it's often done by unbelievers 
who are making some kind of argument against the Bible's truth. When they speak it out, their objection seems wise, but when you look at the whole picture, it's obvious that their statement is just plain wrong because they've deliberately pulled that verse out of context to say something that they want to say. So now it's appropriate to escape a longer diversion into Bible history and go back to the text by meaning that this is exactly the thing that we face by cutting chapter 4 away from the end of chapter 3. Because when we do so, it makes it a lot more difficult to make sense of today's verses. So let's take a deep breath and quickly look back to chapter 3 to see how it connects. Oh no, he's on page 4 and he's only just finishing his introduction. Well, don't worry, I only have another 15 pages. <laughs> chapter 3 starts with Paul asking if he needs a letter of introduction, either to the Corinthians or from the Corinthians, so that his ministry in either case will be taken seriously. No, he says, neither of those is necessary because the Corinthians themselves, in their own godly character, are the validity of the gospel message that he carries. No other proof is necessary. He then goes on to talk about how much better, how much more glorious that gospel message is than the old covenant of the law. And since that is clearly so, Christians can be very bold to proclaim it, to live and defend it in the face of the Judaizers who are causing problems against the Corinthian congregation. And I'll have a bit more to say about them later. But it's not a, a one-off dose that God gives, though. It's not like they, which of course means us too, get a specific little you know, 10 milligram dose of the gospel benefit and they have to make do with that little bit for, for the rest of their lives. No, as verse 18 says, believers are being transformed into the likeness of the Lord with ever increasing glory. And this means that everyone who lives with Christ as Lord will get better and better at that proclaiming and living and defending stuff as their life goes on. So what? Therefore, start of chapter 4, see how the argument continues. It's not separate from chapter 3 at all. Therefore, since God's continuous, through God's continuous transforming mercy, we have this invaluable ministry of proclaiming, living, and defending, which is my summary of the last bit, bit of chapter 3. Because we have those things, we do not lose heart. Do you see why it's important to make the link, how it makes sense of the text? So with that basic idea in mind, we can now unpack things a bit more. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. I think this is a very illuminating verse because of the way it gives both root and worth to the way we use our hands and feet and hearts in ministry. Our works for the Lord ask you a question. Do you believe that you have a ministry? That the Lord has a particular kind of work for you? Well, if you are saved, it is absolutely certain that you do. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says. You know this well. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is of the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. Now we know that bit well, but the next bit, for we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. I think that makes it very clear 
that all believers have a particular work to do. God prepared them specially for each of us individually long ago. And that is always true for all those who are saved by grace. Grace must always be evidenced by work. The two are always connected. And that's why I wanted to show you verses 8 and 9. The trouble is we don't always see it in that way. I don't mean the obvious sense of just not being bothered to get up off the couch and do something. But rather that we might feel that our small part makes no difference at all in God's great plan. But it does. The size of the task is not what matters. It is he who designed and gave it to us that matters. You know, when we, when we see or hear this word ministry, we often look to the pastor. He has a ministry. He preaches sermons. He marries people. He buries people. He counsels people. I make tea. It is indisputable that pastors do have a ministry. So do the people who make tea. And both are identically precious in the eyes of God when those things are done in obedience and sincerity of heart. You know, you might think that a cup of tea is merely an infusion of an East Asian bush's desiccated leaves in hot water. Here you go. Milk and sugar. Next, please. But tea is also friendship and comfort and counsel, isn't it? Who knows what we can really give to another person along with a cup of tea? But the Lord knows, and he will use us for his glory if we just boil the water. Well, Paul gives an, us an incentive to fill that kettle here. Now, obviously, it's impossible for us to know exactly what he had in mind when he wrote verse 1 because we can't ask him. But I'd like to think that one of his intentions was for the purpose of encouraging perseverance to show us the importance of what we do for the Lord, little or large. For me here, the key word is the small one, as. As can also mean like. We have received ministry like or in the same way that we have mercy. So how did we receive mercy from the Lord? Through Jesus, God himself dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our own sin. Now you can't mistake that as being a small or easy thing. So if mercy is connected to that, it has a very high value, then if ministry is there, and it's linked by this little word as, then it suggests that ministry too has a high value to God and we should treat it as such. Yes? What does that look like? Well, I want to suggest two ways. Firstly, just by obeying. Are you called to preach? Great, then preach. Are you called to make tea? Good, boil and pour. There are a thousand other ways the Holy Spirit will use God's people if they are open and available, and every single one of them was given by God through Christ, and therefore every single one of them has a high purpose and value. Not the world's. 
the Lord's purpose and value. And there is no higher purpose or value to be found anywhere in creation. Secondly, what's your attitude of heart when you obey? I want to say we only assign the proper value to our ministry when we do it with vigor and vehemence. Now, vigor means effort, energy, and enthusiasm. Vehemence means great forcefulness or intensity of feeling or expression. There was a guy called Douglas MacArthur, who you might have heard of. He was a very famous American general in, in World War II. And he's mostly remembered for this saying. He said, I shall return, in a speech made in Australia, after he'd been driven from the Philippines by the Japanese. And that was long before Arnold Schwarzenegger got to, I'll be back. Now MacArthur, he also had another saying, which I really like. He said, have a plan... Do it now and execute it violently. He clearly understood vigor and vehemence. Vigor is physical, vehemence is mental and spiritual, so that it makes our whole self engaged, and now all things are possible. <laughs> are they? I'd love to say that when we attack a task vigorously and vehemently, it cannot fail. But we know that's not always true. Sometimes things turn to custard no matter how hard we try. So perhaps it's not worth trying in the first place. No. It's the lifelong attitude of our heart that the Lord prizes, not the pile of achievements we have amassed at the end. No amount of certificates or money or possessions impresses anyone in heaven. In the context of today's text, Vigor and vehemence are the proper external evidence that we understand the value of the mercy and mission we have been given by God. And this link is clearly demonstrated to us by our friend Paul when he writes here that we do not lose heart when failure stalls us or the world attacks us. We do not, we do not lose heart because we see how God's mercy towards us gives us great value to our mission so we keep on keeping on vigorously and vehemently. Now at this point, I want to make it really, really, really clear that I'm not saying in any way that works replaces grace. I would be absolutely dismayed if you thought that. We are only saved by faith in God's, by God's grace, not at all by any of our own efforts. Can a broken glass mend itself? Of course not, and so it is too with the brokenness that we hold before our Creator because of sin. And it's only because God graciously reached out to heal us, to, to mend our brokenness, that we are made whole again in His sight. And that only happened because Jesus, the Son of God, died in our place on the cross. Friends, I tell you that unless you have repented of your sin and taken Jesus as your Lord, you lie eternally broken, just like that glass. And like a broken glass, you'll be swept away and put in the garbage when the Lord returns and all things on earth are brought to an end. So don't delay. We don't know when that will happen. Seek his wholeness. So that's verse 1. How about the second part of our text, verse 2? 
We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Well, there's some background we need to know here. We've spoken before about the problems that Paul and the Corinthians were having with Judaizers. Now, these were folk who just couldn't get their head around the idea that the reign of the Old Covenant was good and had been replaced by the Gospel. And so they wanted to mix the two together by saying that if you want to be a proper Christian, then you must also practice Jewish laws and customs, such as being circumcised. And apparently they felt quite strongly about this. So that in addition to pestering Corinthian believers on an individual basis, they also sought to attack Paul personally, accusing him of all the things that we read about in this verse. And that was very low. They they accused him of being crafty and deceitful in the way he was using the scriptures to evangelize. Now remember, we're not talking about the Bible that you hold in your hand today because that just didn't exist back then. Paul was using this amazing training that he'd had under some of the best um, Jewish teachers in the land. And he was using the Torah along with what the Holy Spirit had revealed to him after his personal salvation to bring new believers into the church. And that's why the Judaizers were not only attacking the message, but they also wanted to attack the messenger. And if you're in Paul's position, that's not a thing you can afford to ignore, is it? Because so very much could go wrong if those Judaizers' claims got any traction. Paul's very own ministry could be destroyed, and along with it the churches that he had planted so painfully. So here in verse 2 he is being careful to specifically refute the accusations against him. And that's all very understandable, but I also think we also need to think about why it's inserted in the text right here. I mean, it looks as though once more in this book, Paul has butterflied from some deep scriptural truth to a random and personal matter in quite an odd way. Well, actually, this is not the case. These two things are, are strongly connected right at the heart because if there was anything that might cause a fellow to lose heart, it would be such a vicious and prolonged attack as Paul was obviously experiencing here. If you were in that situation, under that sort of pressure, where might you find the strength of heart to go on? Well, by reminding yourself just how you got this ministry and who you got it from and therefore why it was so important, well, that would just have to be the best start possible. And isn't that exactly what we've discussed in our study of verse 1? So there you are. All is explained. But we can't go past the personal meaning that this still holds for believers, for us here in this church today. Paul's problem was with Judaizers. And it turns out that in a slightly different form they're still around today, but there are a whole bunch of new societal forces who aggressively speak against the message of Christianity. They see, say things like, it's no longer relevant. It's not contemporary, it's not scientific. You have a weak mind, it's not woke, they say. And these accusations leave us shaking our heads and wondering what the world is coming to. And worse, 
we become afraid to speak the truth of the gospel. We lose hope. Paul wrote here to the Corinthians about his own source of strength as an encouragement at a time when both he and they were under attack. And that circumstance hasn't changed at all despite the intervening 2,000 years. Obviously, Paul is not alive today, but what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is still very much so. So too is the attack, both against what he wrote and the people it still speaks to today, us. So what is our defense? Well, <laughs> that's the same too. It has no need to change. Mercy was given to us by God. Our ministry was given to us by God. His unfailing mercy gives us unfailing hope. Ministry, whatever shape or form that takes at all, that gives us purpose. So we do not have any reason at all to lose our hope. So as it is written here, manifest the truth. Manifest, that's, that means make it real, walk it, talk it, reach out with it, teach it, boil the water. Preach the word. Pray quietly in a corner in the church. Give hospitality. Visit the sick. Feed the poor. Whatever. But in doing so, do not ever, ever compromise the standards of behavior that the Lord has given us. For we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And simply, that is how we will effectively do our prepared work as God's messengers to a desperate, needy world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your words to us would come to mind readily when we are faced with these many oppositions and that they would stir our spirits to do the work that you have prepared for us and in doing that work that many would come to your kingdom and glory would come to you as is your due. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.